My name is Tom Neenan, and I was, until last summer, for 30 years, the professor of music at Caltech. And uh, many people don't think that there should be music at Caltech, or there isn't music at Caltech, but actually there's a great deal of music at Caltech, um, including courses that I taught uh, for all that time in music history and music theory. Uh, there's a fine orchestra, there's a fine wind ensemble, there are, any, at any given time, there are roughly 30 chamber music ensembles uh, playing. There are, there's a, a chorus. Um, there's a lot of music on the Caltech campus. And of course, music and math are, are kind of cousins in the brain. And so it's no surprise that there's so much music on that campus. The last time there was a survey, uh, there was approximately 30% of the undergraduate uh, student body at Caltech was involved somehow in music, either performing or taking one of the music courses or, or something. So it's a very musical place, and it was a great, great place to, uh, to teach for, for many years. Well, this weekend, we have the great uh, Michael Tilson Thomas here, who re recently retired from the San Francisco uh, Symphony, where our own Esa Pekka Salonen has now has now gone. Um, he's a national treasure, I think, Michael Tilson Thomas is. He was, he's a native Los Angelino. Uh, he's a great conductor, of course, and pianist, and a, and a composer and a teacher. I've always admired uh, Michael Tilson Thomas's ability to communicate musical ideas, and one of the things that I used a lot while I was at Caltech were these series of, the series of documentary and concerts that Tilson Thomas and, I see people nodding their heads, uh, and the San Francisco Symphony did called Keeping Score. And uh, I think some of them are available on YouTube, and I think most of them you can like rent or buy through Amazon uh, Prime. Um, I recommend them to you. There's a, probably five or six of them, and what, he's, he does a, a, about an hour documentary about um, five or six or seven of the great pieces in the Western canon of classical music, Beethoven's Eroica, um, Tchaikovsky Pathétique. And one of my favorite um, editions of Keeping Score is a loving uh, uh, edition that, uh, that they did that's devoted to Charles Ives's Holiday Symphony. Michael Tilson Thomas was a great champion of Charles Ives and had great affection for Ives and I think recorded and performed virtually all of Ives's orchestral uh, music. So if you, um, if you uh, have some time, and, and don't we all have time in front of the TV these days, um, you might look those up if you haven't, uh, if you haven't already discovered them. So um, he's provided some really fine notes for the meditations on Rilke, which is on the program uh, tonight. So I'm not going to spend much time talking about them here, and I have a feeling that he might even say something about it from the stage. Um, but the piece is set as a collection of songs by the great uh, German poet and novelist uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, who died at the age of 51 in 1926. His poetry has been described as intensely lyrical and even mystical, and Michael Tilson Thomas remarks in his notes that he has carried them throughout his life and used them um, as meditations uh, for, uh, on his own. But he talks a little bit about 
the fact that his, um, his father, like, like him, his father and his grandfather and even his great-grandfather used music as a kind of a lifelong journal of their, their living experiences, a kind of companion. And as they went along in life, new entries, new musical entries sort of entered into their, into their musical journal. And um, MTT, Michael Tilson Thomas, says that in composing the meditations, his own lifelong musical journal was a lens through which to view and express the poetry. And in the notes, um, Tilson Thomas talks a little bit about his father who found himself in the middle of nowhere in Arizona uh, along with some friends. They had driven across country in an old jalopy and uh, had run out of money in the middle of nowhere in Arizona. And his father was one of these people who could sit down and play virtually anything from Beethoven to Schubert to Mozart to Gershwin to Cole Porter at the piano. And in this, this nothing town, which was a mostly deserted mining town, they came across a kind of a cafe or a restaurant or bar that had a help wanted sign out looking for a pianist to play for the Saturday night dances. And Michael Tilson Thomas's father, in fact, sat down and applied for the, for the position and got it. And uh, for some time, he was the pianist at, in this, you know, this, this nothing little uh, bar in a nothing little mining town in the middle of, uh, the middle of Arizona. And um, he, apparently he learned some of the, even learned some of the local favorite songs, which included one I'd not heard of before. Um, called uh, Bear Fat Fling, uh, which apparently was also used by Charles, Charles Ives. Well, the, the first song of the Meditations on Rilke evokes the, the memory of this with the reference to this, to this scene, uh, complete with a kind of a honky-tonk piano before embarking on the songs of Rilke. And the song sort of evolves, and the, gra and the orchestra sort of gradually comes in, almost like the rising of a curtain on the, the Rilke songs and, and their poetry. And so you can, you can hear this, uh, this transition that occurs that sort of opens this set of songs. meditative quality of this. The first poem is called Herbsttag, or Autumn Day, Day in Autumn. And the translation of the text in English reads, Lord, it is time the summer was immense. Lay your shadow on the sundials and let loose the winds in the fields. 
And Michael Tilson Thomas talks about the fact that the, the first song includes a lot of the musical materials that he's going to use in the, in the successive songs. Um, and you can sort of hear them, these little, almost like little pasticcios, if you will, of musical ideas that occur throughout the song cycle. And near the end of the piece, in the, in fact, the last song, uh, the, the, uh, the flute has a solo at the beginning of the last song, which sort of contains all of that musical mil uh, material and sort of sums up the content of the six songs. And it's a really nice way of sort of wrapping it up. The, the music is, uh, it's modern, but it's very, very accessible, and I think it beautifully evokes the, the poetry uh, by, by Rilke. The program begins with the beautiful little pavan by Gabriel Fauré. Now, Fauré was, is regarded really as one of the most influential French composers of the late 19th century, although his music is not really in its bulk uh, that well known outside of France and Britain. We know the Requiem, we know the, the Pavan, some people know the Sweet Bergamasque, Mask and Bergamasque, the Dolly Suite, and a few other pieces, the Sicilian, but as a body of literature, it's not terribly well known. He was born in the south of France in 1845, and although his family was not particularly musical, his musical, Faure's musical talents presented it themselves uh, early on. Uh, Faure wrote, I grew up in a rather quiet, well-behaved child in an area of great beauty. The only thing I remember really clearly is the organ in the little chapel in our village. Every time I could get away, I ran there and I entertained myself playing atrociously with no technique at all. But I do remember that I was very happy. And if that is what it means to have a vocation, then that is a very pleasant thing. And Faure would go on to become a, a very accomplished organist, uh, joining the ranks of the likes of César Franck and Camille Saint-Saëns, organist composers uh, in Paris during these, uh, during these years. And he was associated for about 50 years with the Church of the Madeleine uh, in central Paris, which probably many of you have, uh, have been to. Uh, the Madeleine, uh, you know, when Paris is fully open and running, uh, there are concerts almost daily at the Madeleine uh, Church there, not too far from the, uh, from the opera. Um, and right across the street from my favorite food market in Paris, Fauchon, which many of you probably know. Um, his position at the Madeleine, along with teaching, was his primary uh, source of income for many years. But in 1890, he had the opportunity to uh, join the Paris Conservatory faculty. In that year, a professor by the name of Ernst Giraud died, and Camille Saint-Saëns, who was on the faculty at the time, recommended uh, Foray. The head of the conservatory at the time was an individual by the name of Amboise Thomas, and Thomas famously declared, Foray, never. If, if he's appointed, I will resign. Well, Foray eventually was appointed, and, for, and Thomas did, did not uh, resign at the time. Um, and Foray went on as the member of the faculty to mentor the likes of Maurice Ravel 
and Nadia Boulanger and Georges Enesco and Florent Schmitt and many other great French uh, composers. So what was it about Faure's musical style that so alarmed Ambroise Thomas and the other members of the uh, conservatory faculty? Well, essentially, Faure's musical style was contemporary and up-to-date, while the powers that held sway at the conservatory were really very much uh, behind the times. I'm going to give you a little example. This is a, a part of a song called Croyance, by Ambroise Thomas, famous, um, written right around the time that Faure wrote the Pavan. It's quite, it's quite simple. be great if it had been written in 1810, but it was written in 1885. Um, and you can hear that the, the harmony is very, very conservative. Let's just be nice. It sort of goes between these two chords a lot. Well, by the time that Thomas wrote that piece, composers such as Frédéric Chopin were writing pieces that sounded like this. And what's so distinctive about that piece um, is the fact that it was written in 1830, and the harmonies, rather than going, they kind of slink around, don't they? So those are the developments that moved along in France so that by the time Thomas was the president of the conservatory and writing music, he was really very much behind the times. Let me give you an example of a piece by Faure, not the Pavan, but a piece that, that builds on that same style of harmonic progression that Chopin helped establish. It's called um, Après un rêve, uh, After a Dream. This is by Faure from around 1885 or so. Gorgeous. And you can hear that what Faure does is not dissimilar to what Chopin does with these kind of slinking harmonies. But what Faure adds are some sort of extra notes that we would think of as almost jazz chords. So the music starts to sound a little bit like Debussy, Ravel, and maybe even Bill Evans. It's 
sort of slinking around in the way that Chopin did. So this is the music that Faure was writing, and it was the music that, that the conservatory faculty didn't want him teaching at the conservatory. Well, the Pavan was written in 1887, originally as a piano piece, and it was orchestrated a year later. And in the orchestral version, Faure actually added an optional part for chorus, and you will sometimes hear the, uh, the piece performed on a choral concert, um, to a text by Robert de Montesquieu. There was a very strong interest in France during the second half of the 19th century in ancient music. Gregorian chant was being rediscovered and uh, researched. Medieval music be was becoming much more uh, much better known, but the main interest was in music of the Renaissance and the early Baroque. And the inspiration for the Pavan came from a slow processional court dance that dates back to the Renaissance either in Italy or in France. In, in the one explanation is that the piece originated in Italy as a danza padovana, a dance from the city of or the town of Padua. The other theory is that it comes from the Spanish pavon, which means uh, peacock, and that the, the, the gestures of the dance in Renaissance times imitated the sort of slow mating dances of the male peacock. Well, you can take your pick on this. I, I, I don't know which, which one is true. In any case, uh, Faure composed the piece for a kind of a summer pops concert, and it was dedicated to his patron, Elizabeth, Countess of Grafoul, and it was on her recommendation that Faure added the part for chorus, and she even suggested that he write, uh, that, that in performances they could add choreography and a dance troupe. And in fact, um, in 1891, she arranged an elaborate garden party in the Bois de Boulogne, which is that forested area sort of on the west end of Paris. And in fact, the piece was presented there with chorus and also with um, choreography. And as you can hear, the plucked strings at the beginning of the piece sort of lay down this stately or kind of somewhat slow 2-4 or 4-4 four, four rhythm. And then there's a solo for flute in its lowest register. You might imagine a male peacock sort of wandering around. The piece is sometimes performed at a painfully low, slow tempo, but we know that that tempo was not the one that Faure had in mind because, in fact, there is a recording of Faure playing this piece. You, 
can hear the, the kind of ebb and flow of the tempo, and the peacocks are perhaps in a more sprightly mood than you might sometimes hear in, this, in performances of this piece. And anyway, it's a gorgeous little gem in which to, with which to uh, begin the program. The second half is given over to Prokofiev's grand uh, fifth symphony. And when we talk about composers, we often talk about compositional periods, and probably the best-known example of that is Beethoven. Scholars talk about Beethoven's three compositional periods, the first one until uh, roughly, roughly 1800, when he was learning from composers such as Mozart and his own teachers, Haydn and Albrechtsberger, and then the years from about 1800 until 1812 or so, the so-called heroic period in which Beethoven grapples with his deafness and many other personal crises and emerges and writes what is uh, certainly his, his best known and in many ways his most powerful music. And then the, th the third compositional period from around 1817 until his death in 1826, in which he sort of turns inward and writes very, very introspective um, and in some, ways, um, in some ways challenging music for the audience. Well, in the case of Prokofiev, it's also possible to talk a little bit about three periods, uh, namely from his youth until right around the time of the Russian Revolution. And during his early years, he was really a, a radical composer, very, very aggressive musical style. But around the time of the Russian Revolution, he left the Soviet Union and he came to the United States. And his time in the United States and Europe during that period, up until around 1936, was not particularly a happy time. He was moderately successful as a concert pianist and composer, but he became desperately homesick, and he went back to the Soviet Union a couple of times in the early 30s, and then in 1936, he settled permanently back in Moscow with his family. And most of the music that we know of Prokofiev the classical symphony notwithstanding, which was written almost as a conservatory piece back when uh, Prokofiev was in his early 20s. But most of the music that we know by Prokofiev, Romeo and Juliet, Cinderella ballet scores, the film music for Lieutenant Kijay and, and the Ale Alexander Nevsky score, and pieces like Peter and the Wolf and the Fifth Symphony date from these years after Prokofiev returned to the Soviet Union. So when the revolution broke out in Russia, everybody obviously was, was trying to find their way, and Prokofiev remarked that he had nothing to do because he wasn't really sure what the, what the climate was for, for artists. And uh, he said that time hung heavily on my hands, and because Russia had no use for music at the moment, he came to the United States and he actually ended up coming and landing uh, in San Francisco in 1918. He obtained permission to leave from the newly appointed People's Commissar for Education who told him, you are a revolutionary in music, which Prokofiev was at the time back in 1918. He says, we are rev revolutionaries in life. We ought to work together, but if you want to go to America, I shall not stand in your way. Artistic uh, freedom was really quite, there, there was a great deal of artistic freedom in the Soviet Union 
in the years immediately following the revolution uh, during Lenin's rule, but as you all know, as things went along, things became much more difficult for artists in the Soviet Union. So he returned to the Soviet Union, Prokofiev did in 1927, went back and forth between Europe and America, and as I said, he eventually settled in Moscow again permanently in 1936, which unfortunately was the year that Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk was viewed by none other than Joseph Stalin, who saw to it, and many people think he actually wrote a um, front page Pravda editorial de, uh, castigating Shostakovich. The headline was muddle rather than music. And when this happened, that is when, when this article in Pravda came out, it sent a chilling effect across all Soviet artists, not just composers, and everyone who was an artist in the Soviet Union at the time began looking over their shoulder to see what might happen, whether they might be sent into exile or even worse. And between 1936 and 1938, the years of the Great Purge of Stalin, the estimates of people who died during the Great Purge ranged between 950,000 and 1.2 million people. Prokofiev responded to the publication of Shostakovich and other artists by composing the charming but innocuous Peter and the Wolf and also a number of patriotic pieces, including a cantata celebrating the 20th anniversary of the revolution. But the Soviet authorities had kind of full plates, obviously, during World War II, and it was during that time that the restrictions and the surveillance on artists kind of was relaxed, and Shostakovich rehabilitated himself with the Fifth Symphony, which came along in 1937, and Prokofiev found himself for a time in the good graces of the Soviet authorities, writing music that was considered appropriate for the masses. The, the Fifth Symphony was composed uh, at an artist colony about 80 miles outside of Moscow in a town, outside of a town called Ivanova. And it was a very popular place far away from the, the stress and strain of Moscow or Leningrad during the war. And lots of Soviet artists, musicians, com composers, writers, and, and so forth went to Ivanova and were well-fed and well-cared for and were able to write music that was approved by the Soviet authorities. Reinhold Glier, Shostakovich, Kachaturian, Kabalevsky, and Prokofiev all took the opportunity to go and work in Ivanova. The Fifth Symphony was composed there in the early years of 1944, just as the Soviets were beginning to really get the, the upper hand in the war against the Germans. And for the rest of his day, Prokofiev considered the Fifth Symphony his greatest work, his most important work, and his most successful work. He says, I wanted to sing the praises of the free and happy human being of such a person's strength, generosity, and purity of soul. I cannot say I chose this theme. It was born into me and had to express itself. Well, the premiere of the Fifth Symphony took place in the Great Hall of the Moscow Conservatory in January of 1945. And it was briefly halted due to celebratory cannon firing outside the concert hall because the Soviets had just 
crossed the Vistula River and were driving the Germans back into Germany. And the great uh, Soviet pianist Svetoslav Richter was in the audience that night and he says this, the Great Hall was illuminated, no doubt, the same way it always was, but when Prokofiev stood up, the light seemed to pour straight down on him from somewhere up above. He stood like a monument on a pedestal, and then when Prokofiev had taken his place on the podium and silence reigned in the halls, artillery salvo suddenly thundered forth. His baton was raised, he waited, and began only after the cannons had stopped. There was something very significant in this, something symbolic. It was as if all of us, including Prokofiev, had reached some kind of shared turning point. The post-war years for Prokofiev were productive, but they were not particularly happy. Shortly after the premiere of the Fifth Symphony, he took a fall as a result of a chronic blood pressure problem that he had and suffered a, a bad concussion, and he never really recovered from it. And Prokofiev had the singular misfortune of dying on March 5th, 1953, exactly the same day as Joseph Stalin. And typically, for Prokofiev, who was an exceedingly well-known composer of the time, thousands of people would have attended his funeral, but Red Square was so full of people wanting to view Stalin's body in that great mausoleum that sits next to the Kremlin, that Prokofiev's close friends and family, all they could do was carry Prokofiev's coffin by hand through the back streets to a cemetery where there was a brief service. And, it, and in the Soviet music journal, in the next issue, there was only a brief mention of Prokofiev's death on page 116. Incidentally, Stalin remained in that mausoleum next to uh, the Kremlin until 1961 when there was a reevaluation of Stalin's legacy and he was moved down, down the way a little bit with some of the lesser known uh, Soviet composers. So to the music itself, the Fifth Symphony is in four movements, more or less slow, fast, slow, fast. The first movement is in the familiar sonata form that we know from Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and all the 19th century composers. It has a very, very broad opening first theme. And as we would expect with a sonata form piece, there's a contrasting second movement. This one is in a different tempo and a different, slightly different meter. Uh, makes a good contrast, and the two play off of one another during the piece. And there's a closing theme, just like a Haydn symphony. <laughs> the 
The second movement is a, is a scherzo, and it's one of those Prokofiev melodies that I love and, and you're very, very familiar with. It's, it's kind of quirky and you know, it seems like it's kind of going to run off the tracks, um, but it, it never really does. It's a great little tune. The third movement, the adagio, the central slow movement, is to me a kind of mysterious piece. I mean, when Shostakovich rehabilitated himself with the Fifth Symphony, he wrote this heart-wrenching, elegiac slow movement in the Fifth Symphony. This one is kind of episodic, and it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to pin down, I think. The, the finale, in the style of Beethoven, recalls some of the themes from earlier in the symphony, and it's, again, one of these very kind of um, jaunty, quirky themes. I think it's very cinemagraphic. And I think a lot of Prokofiev's music is very cinemagraphic. He was, in fact, a great uh, film composer, and he learned a lot about the language of the Hollywood film scores from being in Hollywood during the 30s, during the 20s and 30s, when the language of the Hollywood film score was really being created by people like Korngold and, and Max Steiner. And just to, to bring the point home and to, to wrap up tonight's talk, I have a little mashup of the last movement of Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony with something that you may recognize from something a little more modern. That, of course, is the main title from Steven Spielberg's classic 1982 film, E.T. So, you can close your eyes and you can imagine extraterrestrials, or you can imagine the Soviet army driving the Nazis out of Soviet uh, Russia, whatever you like. It's a great piece, and it's going to be a great concert, so enjoy, and thank you for your attention tonight. <laughs>